Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Happy Wednesday. I hope that you all are doing well this morning. I want to just remind everybody that next week is spring break for many schools, and so we will not be meeting on Wednesday. I will not be in town. I will think of you. Um, but we will not have a meeting next Wednesday, so we'll be two weeks from today for our next class. And we are pivoting today into Kings. We completed 2 Samuel last week, and so today we're going to be shifting into 1 Kings. We're not going to get beyond 1 Kings. We're not even going to get halfway through 1 Kings because we're really just going to focus on Solomon's ascension to the throne over these last few weeks of our study because we only have gosh, what, five more weeks or something like that after this week? I know. I see the tears. Um, so we've got just a little bit left to work on Solomon. Today we're going to talk about David's death, the end of his life, and kind of passing the baton on to Solomon. So reminder, we I love questions. Um, so if you have them, kind of get them percolating and ready to ask. We're going to have a prayer, and then we'll kick it off. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together on this day, and we ask that you be with each of us. Be with us in this time. Help us to be open to your spirit that we can be transformed as disciples. For those of us traveling in the next few weeks, keep us safe. Be with those who need your healing touch, those we hold in the silence of our hearts and minds, those who may be nearing the end of their life, that they be uplifted by your presence and surrounded by your love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I noted, we are going into 1 Kings today. So I'm going to do a little bit of an intro on what Kings is and kind of how it fits and what we can look for as we begin reading together. Any questions, though, about last week, the conclusion of 2 Samuel, and essentially the preparation for the end of David's life? Any questions? Okay. Let's talk about Kings. Kings tells the story, essentially, of the monarchy of Israel after David. It does include a section of Solomon as king, but it's not only about Solomon. Solomon's section of the Bible is much smaller than David's section of the Bible. David takes up a lot of real estate in the Bible, whereas Solomon, although certainly a character we know, and we can probably recall a few small stories about Solomon, is only a few chapters of 1 Kings. Most of the second half of 1 Kings and then 2 Kings tells the story of how the monarchy and the kingdom itself devolves from the unity that David and then Solomon reigned over. I think we all remember that David and Solomon, kings over all of Israel. But once Solomon dies, the kingdom split. And essentially the kingdom split the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel is used in many different ways, but it is the northern kingdom of Israel are all the tribes that do not remain loyal to David's line. Essentially, you've got 10 tribes in the north, give or take, and you've got one, maybe two, depending on the time period we're talking about, in the southern kingdom, primarily the tribe of Judah. That's David's tribe. It's Solomon's tribe. When Solomon dies, there's a fight about who's going to be king. And essentially, Judah remains faithful to David's line. The others split, and they go in their own way. Although it might seem like there's a decent amount of succession, 
there is a lot of failure, king after king after king. It just gets worse and worse and worse. So in about 970, we're going to put all this together. Solomon dies. The kingdoms are split. This is 970 BCE. So this is almost a thousand years before Jesus' birth. When those kingdoms split, the northern kingdom hangs on for about 150 years or so to about, no, I'm sorry, I did the math wrong, about 250 years to about 722. In 722, the Assyrians come from the north and they invade the northern kingdom of Israel and they essentially sack it. That is not really the exile as we talk of the capital E exile. The Assyrians essentially just wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. We are familiar with the term, the lost tribes of Israel. It's them. They kind of just vanish. And they don't vanish like magic, but they cease to be critically important to the history of the Jewish people. Fast forward to 587, about 150 years later, and the Babylonians overtake the Assyrians and the Babylonians come farther south to sack the southern kingdom of Israel. And that's when they take all the leadership of the tribe of Judah and the southern kingdom up into exile. That's the moment that we call the exile. That's 70 years of time when the leaders of the Jewish people are not in and around Jerusalem and the land of Israel. All of that happens because of the problems of the kings. Essentially, as the people go into exile, and they ask the question, what happened? They reflect and begin to understand that the kingdom period drew the people away from God, that the people themselves, even if they were well-intentioned, fell farther and farther away from God to the point where God let them be taken into exile. It was really the people's fault, the king's fault. And so in the books, First and Second Kings, we get the whole story told of why the exile happened in the first place. So as we begin in 1 Kings, even though we're not going to get too far into 1 Kings and we're not going to touch 2 Kings at all, I want you to have in your mind as we tell the story of David's death, Solomon's reign, and the way in which people function badly, part of the purpose of this story, in addition to just historic record, is to show everybody reading this what not to do. They're telling the stories of these kings and all of their problems so that people don't make the same mistakes in the future. And as we know, these stories were written before, during, and especially finalized after the exile as a what not to do, a cautionary tale, so to speak, for all the Jewish people. Questions about that? Because I have one more note about where Kings falls with the other books. What year was it for Babylonians to come into the 587. So 970, Solomon dies-ish. We don't really know, but that's kind of what people say. 970. 722, Assyrians sack the northern kingdom. 587, Babylonians sack the southern kingdom. So really, we're not talking about a gigantic amount of time before Jesus's life. I mean, let's be honest, 500 plus years, that's not nothing. But it's also not as if it's the Jurassic era 
or something like that. It's not so far away. And when you get 587, about 70 years in exile, so it's only about 500 years before Jesus is born that the people come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that is the second temple that is developed over centuries, really built out by Herod the Great, and that's the one Jesus actually walks into in the Gospels. Where do they go during their exile? Where do they go during their exile? So the Babylonians take a group of Jews into exile in Babylon. So if you can imagine, I, I don't really, I don't have my stuff. If you imagine that the um, Fertile Crescent is sort of an upside down U, if you imagine the Euphrates and rivers and where Iraq and kind of Western Turkey and Syria are, you've got this sort of curve bit above the desert. Babylon's kind of up there in that curve. Israel is down next to the Mediterranean Sea. Babylon, you know, east of Israel in what is today Jordan and other countries is extremely arid. It still is. It's essentially a desert. You can't really grow food there. So as although it's not totally unimportant, it really isn't that important to keep control of because no one's really there. They're really not able to build big cities very easily. Um, you've got shepherds and um, nomads out there, but that's about it. Israel, though, has this fertile ground, and I believe we've said this in here before, Israel is essentially the bridge that connects Persia, Babylon, Turkey, that area, down into North Africa, Egypt and Ethiopia in particular. And so you've got these major civilizations, Egypt and Ethiopia are two big ones, that are trying to connect with and trade with civilizations like Persia and Babylon, and to get from one to the other, people go through Israel. So Israel is a strategically valuable piece of land. When the Babylonians want to conquer Israel, they don't want to live in Israel. That's not what they're interested in. They just want to control it. They want to make sure passage is safe so that goods can be traded back and forth between the big empires. Israel doesn't really matter much. It seems like it matters to us, but in the grand scheme of kind of civilizations of this time period, Israel's a blip. It really isn't that big a deal. We think of it as a big deal because they conquer their neighbors all around. But remember, this is a small little bit of land that no one really wants. They just need to be able to pass through it safely. And so that's why Babylon wants control, which is why they do not occupy Israel. They're not interested. And they don't really care to control it, they just want to destabilize it. And so how do you destabilize a country? You take the leaders away. And so exile does not mean all Jewish people. Exile only means all Jewish leaders. So a shot in the dark, we don't really know this for sure, but you're talking maybe five to 10% of the total population of Israel would have been taken into exile. It's not huge, it's meaningful. But it's not huge. These are the priests, they're the legal scholars, um, the politicians, the monarchs, the on and on. It's the people who kind of keep the order. Everybody else has left. So if you're a farmer, you kind of stayed. And if you were a you know, shepherd, you stayed. They didn't, they're not interested in you because they're only interested in the people that keep the organization running. And so that's why when they're in exile, they have all this time. I mean, talk about 
a tragedy for the kind of legal or governmental structure. If you take the leadership of an entire civilization away from its land and put them together for decades, they're going to have all kinds of time to come up with all kinds of junk in their minds. You know, they don't have to do anything. They're just going to think and they're going to talk and they're going to write and they're going to think some more and talk and then write some more. And so by the time they're done after 70 years, it's just a mess of all kinds of stories and legalities and structures and governmental ideas. And then they descend back on Jerusalem to all these people who were probably just fine shepherding and growing stuff. And then they tell them all the things that they're supposed to do now. That's really what happens with the exile. Other questions? All right, so the last thing I want to note, I've said before that I reference the Old Testament and I do not use the phrase Hebrew Bible in this class intentionally because the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, although very similar, are not the same. And one of the big ways that they differ is in their order of books. That begins to matter when we get to Kings and beyond. In the Old Testament, in our Bibles, we go from Samuel to Kings to Chronicles. All the way through 2 Kings, it's essentially a chronological story from Genesis to 2 Kings. It's not perfect, but it's almost entirely a story that goes step by step in time. Once we get to the end of 2 Kings, we get to 1 Chronicles, and it's like we jump back in time again. 1 and 2 Chronicles, in our Bible, tells the whole story of Samuel and Kings again, but just differently. And it's a little weird to get all the way through 2 Kings, and then you start 1 Chronicles, and you say, haven't we done this before? Yes, yes, we have done this before. In the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is the very last book. In the Hebrew Bible, there is one whole big story told, and those stories are told through all the Psalms and the poetry and the prophets and the writings and all the history. And then you get Chronicles. Chronicles essentially is the summary of everything that had been done. Chronicles begins with Adam, and it goes all the way through and tells the entire story of the people, such that if you were a Hebrew Bible scholar, or say, even better, say you're preparing for your bar mitzvah or your bat mitzvah. What you might be told to do is read Chronicles and get the whole summary. It's like spark notes or cliff notes or something like that. This is the whole idea. Then you can go back and read all the other stuff with all the details. Chronicles just sums it all up. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, that's it. And so it makes sense to put a nice little summary, almost an epilogue summary at the end of the entire book. Check, done. That's not what the Old Testament is for us. The Old Testament is the first part of the story. And so if we were to end with Chronicles, it would not make much sense. So instead, we reorder the books such that we end with the prophets. Because what do the prophets prophesy? Messiah. And so we go straight from the prophets that say the Messiah is coming, turn the page, and you get Matthew. And so for us, the Old Testament is ramping up to the real point, which is Jesus in the New Testament. But for the Hebrew Bible, it is one self-contained narrative. And so that's just an FYI. 
we're not doing Chronicles. I would love to never do Chronicles in my life. And so we're, I just want you to know, if you decide you're going to be very faithful and you're gonna read all the way through First and Second Kings, which by the way, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no first and second. It's just Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. There's no part one, part two. I'm not entirely sure why we have a part one, part two, so don't ask. I, if you care, I'll find out. But essentially we have, all the way through Kings, if you turn the page and go to Chronicles and you wonder what's going on, I just wanted to make sure you had that information. Okay, let's get into it. Unless you have a question about order of books and Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, any of those. I'll just have to wait just a few seconds. Yes, ma'am. So I'm looking at how thick it is between the end of Kings and the New Testament. Yeah. It's like half of our Bible is between the end of Kings and the New Testament. All the prophets. You've got Psalms and Proverbs in there. Yeah, poetry too. But otherwise, all those other people. Um, and what about the Wisdom of Solomon? It's, it's back there. Wisdom of Solomon is. Wisdom of Solomon is an interesting book because the Wisdom of Solomon. Ooh, Beth, you've. Hmm. I do not think so. Because I think the Wisdom of Solomon falls into the category of what would ultimately become apocryphal. Um, so we've talked a little bit about how there's, there's a 400 year period of time between essentially the prophets and the birth of Jesus. People didn't stop telling stories and writing stuff in those 400 years, but it's a period of time where Protestant reformers did not believe that the stuff written should be included in the Bible. And so ultimately the Roman Catholic Bible includes a number of things um, like Bell and the Dragon and stuff that you may not even, I don't know if you ever read that. Um, did you know Bell and the Dragon is a book in the Apocrypha in our Bible? Yes. See, look, it's so fun. You should read it. It's good. Um, so there's a whole set of books that are just kind of strange. Um, they're not necessarily historic, although some are like the Maccabees. Um, that's in the Apocrypha. So some are historic, some are fun, some are poetic. When the Bible was codified, as we know it in the Roman Catholic version, there were a number of people outside of Italy who thought that the Pope didn't quite get it right. Those efforts ultimately landed with what we call the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther didn't make this stuff up himself. He's just the one who got the attention about it. So when he tacked up his theses, part of his theses said, there are a set of books that should not be in the Bible. And it's not just him, it was a ton of people saying that was not quite done right. And so we want to pull them out. So if you go and look at a Protestant Bible, if you just go to a Christian bookstore and pull most Bibles off the shelves, it's not going to have the Apocrypha. Our Bible that we use as Episcopalians have a little middle section called the Apocrypha because God forbid we ever pick one side or the other, we're just gonna go down the middle. And so, Rather than saying, yes, it should be in the Bible, we said, well, kinda. So we added a third section in between the Old Testament and the New Testament so that we could all read it, but it's not necessarily authoritative. There you go. And so what, you're, what that chunk you held up includes the Apocrypha. So there is a section there that would not be in a Protestant Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible. But it does include Proverbs and Psalms, the poetry areas, because our Old Testament begins with the law 
then goes into the writings, and then goes into the prophets. And so writings really is the history of the kingdom period plus some of the poetry, Psalms and Proverbs, that come after that historic period. Other questions? All right, then let's jump in. As we begin First Kings, we need to hearken back to a section of 2 Samuel. So just stay on 1 Kings, don't worry about it. I'll read it to you. David is old at the beginning of 1 Kings. David's so old that he can't keep himself warm, sort of like many of you in, this, in the chapel. Um, <laughs> David's having trouble staying warm, and so they need to kind of bring him a person. They need, they, he needs a cuddle buddy to just keep his body warm. And as this unfolds, there is a promise that David lives into that comes back from 2 Samuel. So just for our reference, I'm going to read it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, and a few say this. God is speaking through the prophet to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings, but I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you before. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we get a promise from God to David, not to be to David like God was to Saul. So David is now at the end of his life, and he's got this promise in his mind. And so even though David became king after Saul, and David was not part of Saul's line, David is expecting that someone from his line will become king. And it's almost certain that David's promise, I'm sorry, God's promise to David is one that people would have known, especially his sons. And so now let's look at 1 Kings. King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. So a servant said to him, Let a young virgin be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king, and be his attendant. Let her lie in your bosom, so that my lord the king may be warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She became the king's attendant and served him, but the king did not know her sexually. Now, verse 5, now Adonijah, son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So let's pause there. David has had many children. David has many primary wives and secondary wives, there are lots of kids. But we've learned over the verses that Absalom and Amnon were his two oldest sons. Both Amnon and Absalom have died. That leaves Adinijah as the oldest son. And so Adinijah, on his own, 
Seeing his father, I guess, can't stay warm. That means he's nearing the end of his life. And then a judge says, it's going to be me. And so he begins to create his own party. So Adinijah, look at what he does. He exalts himself. He prepares for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. This dude is going around with his own parade because he is preparing himself to be king. He wants to make sure everybody knows who's next in line. And he's not king yet, but he sure is acting like it. There are some important characters that we already know who do not align themselves with the Dinaja. I should actually start by saying, if we have not figured this out yet, a reminder, God does not raise up the people the world thinks he should. And so we have in a long line, every single patriarch, from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac, not the firstborn. From Isaac to Jacob, Jacob, not the firstborn. Jacob to Joseph, Joseph, not the firstborn. So we have a series where the presumed heir, the oldest son, is not the one that receives the covenant and takes the lead. David, definitely not the firstborn. And so we've got Adinijah coming in to claim what he thinks is his rightful place as the oldest living son, but that's not the way God operates. So we as careful Bible readers should immediately say, hold on, man. I mean, this isn't the way that God functions most of the time. Not only that, but there are people who do not align with Adinijah, namely Nathan and Bathsheba. And so you could kind of characterize this first section of 1 Kings as how you get what you want with an old person. That's really what's happening here. And so what's going on here is David is aging quickly and everybody knows his days are short, his days are numbered, he does not have his wits about him as he would have as a younger man. And Bathsheba and Nathan realize that if Adinijah becomes king, if nobody challenges him, if David says nothing about this, then they are at risk because they have remained faithful to Solomon. So Nathan and Bathsheba hatch a little plan. I shouldn't say it that way. Nathan and Bathsheba coordinate their efforts to get Solomon to be king. And I say it that way because we do not know that what they say to David is untrue, but we do not know that it actually happened. And so we're going to read the next little bit, and I want you to keep in mind, there's no proof of what Nathan and Bathsheba say, but maybe, I mean, it certainly could have happened. So let's look at verse 11, and we're just going to read a bit because I want you to see this brilliant political theater moment here. Verse 11. Nathan said to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard? I love this. I, it, I can just imagine them like, have you not heard? Okay, have you not heard that Adinijah, son of Haggith, has become king and our Lord David does not know it, which is not true. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice so that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, did you not, my Lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adinijah king? 
Then, while you are still there speaking with the king, I'll come in after you and confirm your words. That's kind of clever. So Bathsheba went to the king in his room. The king was very old. Abishag the Shunammite was attending the king. Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance to the king, and the king said, What do you wish? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Your son Solomon shall succeed me as king, and he shall sit on my throne. But now suddenly Adonijah has become king, though you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fatted cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the children of the king, the priest Abiathar and Joab, the commander of the army. But your servant Solomon he has not invited. But you, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass, when my lord the king sleeps with his ancestors, that my son Solomon and I will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking, the prophet Nathan came in. The king was told, here's the prophet Nathan. When he came in before the king, he did obeisance to the king and his face was on the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall succeed me as king and he shall sit on my throne for today? He has gone down and has sacrificed oxen, fatted cattle and the sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's children, Joab, the commander of the army and the priest Abiathar, who are now eating and drinking before him and saying, long live King Adonijah. But he did not invite me, your servant, and the priest Zadok, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiah, and the, your servant Solomon. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and have you not let your servants know you should sit, who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Okay, so we'll pause there. So essentially what's happening is Bathsheba goes in and says, hey, you said, you promised. I mean, it's very much like a seven-year-old, you promised. <laughs> now, we don't know that David promised, but we don't know that David didn't promise. And so I will give them the benefit of the doubt that they are not being manipulative and that David at some point said something to Bathsheba about Solomon being king. Okay, so Bathsheba goes in there to remind David of what he said. Nathan comes in to say to David, did you actually say Adonijah was gonna be king? Because Bathsheba here says that you said Solomon would be, I mean, it's very much like a he said, she said kind of thing. But what's interesting about this in the political sense as we noted, Adinijah had started building up favor with people, assuming he was going to be king. He's throwing a party. He's throwing a big feast. And who didn't he invite? Solomon, the only child of the king. Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. The king's prophet, Nathan. The king's priest, Abiathar, and Zadok. So these five people, are seeing the writing on the wall. If Adinijah is able to coalesce all of the power, who's dead after David's gone? Those five people. It's just the way it works. And so they have this moment in time where Adinijah has not been actually named king, even though he's acting like it. David's on his deathbed, but there's a moment they can save themselves. And so they go in and they get David to say, Oh, yeah, that's right. I did say Solomon was going to be king. So let's keep reading. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, we're just going to say Solomon. David says, yes, Solomon should be king. I never said anything about Adonijah, so let's make it happen. Jump to verse 38. 
So the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and Pethel, whatever, the Cherethites and the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and led him to Gion. There the priest Zadok took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up following him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth quaked at their noise. Now is the good part. Adinijah and all his guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. When Joab, Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why is the city in an uproar? While he was still speaking, Jonathan, son of the priest Abiathar, arrived. Adinijah said, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and surely you bring good news. Jonathan answered Adinijah, Nope. <laughs> for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they had him ride on the king's mule. The priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan have anointed him, anointed him king at Gion, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you heard. Solomon now sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. The king bowed in worship on the bed and went on to pray thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who today has granted one of my offspring to sit on my throne and permitted me to witness it. Oh man, this is like really leaning in. Adonijah is stuck. Solomon's been anointed. Solomon's been placed on the throne. David, King David, before his death, has blessed God publicly that he was able to witness the crowning of the next king. Adinijah's toast. Nobody is going to follow him now. And the people begin to scatter. After the, like the feast is barely over. And people are like out the back door because they absolutely do not want to be associated with the Dinajah at this point. They're running through the back door of the castle or the, you know, the palace to probably like scoot around the corner and be like, oh, here I am. I'm here, Solomon. Um, so it's, it's one of those moments where you see this political intrigue between the brothers and Solomon essentially wins out. And he's not the only one that wins out. Nathan, Bathsheba, the others, they all win out because they were loyal to David vis-a-vis -vis Solomon, and Solomon is now king. Okay. Questions about that or comments? <laughs> Thank you. I do, these stories are so good. And it's, what's so fun, I think, about the Bible is most of us are brought up, it's a total tangent, most of us are brought up in church to be so very serious and the stories are serious and I think that we can begin to believe that they're almost unreal. It's like not real life. But when you really read these stories and you get beyond what can be somewhat wonky, unusual language and you get at what is happening in the moment, you realize they're just like us. These are people who are smart, intelligent, dumb, they make mistakes, they try to secure their own future, they work hard or they're lazy or they're um, liars or they're, I mean, all of it. They're just people. And if we can take them off the stained glass windows for a minute and let them be people, 
I think what that does for us is it affirms our imperfections in a really important way. Because if all we do is come to church and feel like we're constantly not measuring up to what we should be, then that creates in us this pervasive, almost self-hatred that then pours out over to other people and we become mean and we miss the entire point of the gospel. And really what God does here is God looks at this mess of people and still says something good can come of this. Well, isn't that nice? Because look at us, this mess of people, something can, good can come out of this. And so to tell the stories well, is really about making sure we know that the formality and the fancy whatever that church can often embody is kind of like lipstick on the pig of humanity. Um, we're messy and we don't have to be perfect. Even though we like to dress up, I mean, I'm the kind of person who I tell my children all the time, my children would love to wear yoga pants and shorts to church, and I say, no, um, because you have time to put on something nice. There's something nice and mental about we're setting apart this time when we go to church as something different than the rest of the world. But I always then follow up by saying, but if you ever need to go to church, you go exactly as you are, because it never matters to God it's only about us. If we can prepare to be here, all the better. But if we can't prepare to be here, you come anyway. And so part of what we have to watch in a community like ours is that people feel like when they're falling apart, they can't go to church. Exactly wrong. When you're falling apart, you've got one shoe on and your hair is matted or whatever, that's when you go to church. And we have to make sure that we don't ever create an environment that makes a person falling apart feel like they can't be here. Well, there you go. That was not exactly what you did. <laughs> All right, comments or questions about that moment before we get to David's actual death? All right, chapter two. In chapter two, we officially have the baton being handed from David to Solomon. David will die in this chapter. But there's an interesting note in the first few verses that I want to lift up and see if you can catch it. Let's just start reading chapter two, verse one. When David's time, I'm sorry, when David's time to die drew near, he charged his son Solomon saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, be courageous, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Then the Lord will establish his word, what he spoke concerning me. If your heirs take heed to the, their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. Let's pause there. Did you catch that? If your heirs take heed to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. The people who wrote this story know that the throne failed. And so they're making it super clear as David passes the baton, what actual faithfulness to God looks like. Because then, as we go throughout the rest of First and Second Kings, they're going to show us 
what being unfaithful looks like. And king after king after king that turns away from God rather than turning toward God, as David told Solomon, is the ultimate reason why the kingdoms were flattened and overrun by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So we're seeing these little nuggets dropped already that a close reader post-exile would absolutely hear what the writer had intended here. And that is, we must remain faithful in heart and mind and soul in order to remain close with God. Because if God's with us, who can be against us? But if we're not with God, God may not necessarily stick with us to teach us a lesson, not necessarily to just cause us harm, but this will help expand the point of the stories they're about to tell in these two books. Let's keep going, verse five. There's a pivot here from David being the largesse great king to David being the person. Verse five, moreover, you know also what Joab son of Zeruah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner son of Ner and Amasa son of Jether, whom he murdered, retaliating in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let this gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Deal loyally, however, with the sons of Barzillai and Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from your brother Absalom. There is also with you Shammai, son of Gera, and Benjamite, a, the Benjaminite from Barum, who caught, cursed me with the terrible curse on the day when I went to Meh Mehanoam. Sorry, gang. Ugh. But when we came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death with the sword. Therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you must bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. <laughs> then David slept with his ancestors. Okay, we're going to pause there. Hold on. Before David dies, do you see what's happening here? This is so like the Godfather. I mean, David, David's like Solomon. Be good and follow Moses, and God will love you forever. And by the way, that a-hole that did me wrong, you need to make sure you take him out. I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, it's like, boom, David just turns on a dime. And so, I mean, here he's got, he's like, by the way, Joab, you got to take him out. Like, listen to what it literally says. Do not let his head go down to Sheol. Sheol, by the way, is essentially the place of the dead. Um, you could say hell, but we have a lot of baggage around hell, so just kind of say it's the dead resting place. Don't let his head go down to Sheol in peace. Dang. And then he says over here, I mean, this guy, there's also Shammai, son of Gera. And essentially what David's saying here is, I said I'm not going to kill him, but he deserves to die, son. And so he's like, I, I promised I wouldn't kill him. You go kill him. And so David really is like burning it down on the way out. Um, so we have this very interesting dynamic here. Again, a question, why would they tell this story this way? I mean, or at least flip them. Start with, hey, kill the people who aren't loyal to us, and then remember to be faithful to God. I mean, end like on a warm note. Um, I mean, we basically have 
you must bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David died. I mean, it's really just like, boom, last words of David, kill the sucker. Um, I mean, that's really it. And then we've got, then David died. It's so strange. But as you know, macro point of this study this year is to look at the character of David. David is not perfect. David is so very human. And David has this dynamic mix of faithfulness and messiness that I think is just indicative of all of us. And so before David can be let off into the sunset, we get one more super clear reminder of his genuine humanity. And the writers do not do this by accident. The writers did this definitely on purpose. This could have been edited over centuries, and it remains as it is. And there's a point for us. The point really is David is a good model for us because no matter how messy he is, and this is way messier than us, I think, no matter how messy he is, he is faithful to God and God is faithful to him, which gives us the hope and the direction that no matter what mess we're in, our faithfulness to God can continue and then God's faithfulness to us will sustain us all the way through. That's really the message here. And David is just this brilliant icon of the way that that kind of mess and faithfulness is held in tension. It's not all or nothing. It's both and all the time. All right, let's see. Yes. Um, how does that work? <laughs> you said be faithful to God and not be faithful to Him, and yet He's telling us to go precisely to kill people. In light of since you're trying to figure this out, yeah. How do you know? It's a good question. Um, let me try and reframe the question. As, as funny as a scene like this can be, there is a genuine desire to learn from this story so that we can actually be better. Is that, does that sound fair? I'm not following. <laughs> following the story or? I'm not following the good part. Oh, the good part of David. Yes. So not following the good part of David. Thank you. That's helpful. We, I think that Christianity has in some ways done us a disservice. And by that, I don't mean Jesus. I mean Christianity. I think Christianity has done disciples of Jesus a disservice by either implicitly or explicitly yoking our actions to our value and our faithfulness. That's not really biblical. The Bible holds actions and faithfulness as separate. It doesn't mean that they don't influence each other, because of course they do. But in this situation, in th these few verses, what we see here is David's faithfulness and his really bad actions. And there's no 
real um, resolution offered in the scripture because the people who wrote this don't need a resolution. That does not confuse them. Because of course you do bad things, but you can still be faithful, totally. For us, we've got centuries, if not millennia of theology that has been built up around, you do a bad thing, you're a bad person. And that's not really what we see in the Bible. I think a lot of times, I mean, I know I say this to my own children, you may have done something bad. You are not a bad person. I try to correct that. But theologically speaking, there are so many Christian bodies that actually intentionally say you do a bad thing, you're a bad person. Because if you do a bad thing, then you're a bad person, then who do you need but someone to make you good? You can't make you good. You need us to make you good. And so the church writ large has secured its authority and its influence over centuries by being the only place where you can then become good again. And that sort of yoking of your action and your value is not what God shows through the Bible. It's not what Jesus shows through the Bible. It's only what the church has done over time, well intended or not, it is very hurtful to people, and it makes the church, I think, different than Jesus intends it to be. And so part of what we're in in this moment is a reckoning of doing and being as not always the same thing. I would argue that we are in a period of time right now, we will all live through a period of time where there's this desire to shake apart the doing and the being. And as we go through that transition, a lot of people are trying one thing or the other. The whole idea of self-actualization, this like going and finding yourself or being true to yourself or speaking your truth and all the other stuff, that's... I mean, I think it can be a coping mechanism, it can be therapeutic, it can be all different kinds of things. What it's not is it's not really godly. And I say that knowing that I'm certain plenty of people in this room have had a lot of healing happen through self-actualization. I don't want to say that it's bad, but don't confuse a desire to be self-actualized as somehow being faithful to God. That's not really it. God doesn't call us to like ourselves. <laughs> Where's that? That's nowhere. Um, it's okay. I, uh, it's great if you like yourself, super. Um, God's not concerned with you liking yourself. God's concerned with your faithfulness. And faithfulness is not a feeling. Faithfulness is an action. So when David does bad stuff, it's not enough for David to feel bad. David has to go do something about it. And so when we talk in Lent, I mean, it's perfect right now in the season of Lent, we talk about repentance. And if you look at actually the words that we say in the beginning of our Ash Wednesday service, it's kind of harsh. Most people would read those words and think to themselves, that's not Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. It's God. God's not a warm hug. That's just not what it is. If you need a warm hug, get one. But that's not really God. And I think that ultimately what we have to kind of try to correct is that 
our actions don't define our worth. Our actions don't define our value. The church cannot be the place where you gain your worth. The church can affirm it and should, but your worth is given to you by God, period. And you can take all kinds of bad actions. All of us will every single day. You are still worthy of God's love. That's it. And the church is nothing more about that. What I hope the church does at its best is it recognizes and raises up and affirms our worth as children of God. And when we start there, then we can essentially uncouple the mistakes we make from our inherent value to be loved. And then what Jesus does is says, God already loves you and God wants you to love him back. That's it. And as you love, you will then therefore make better and better choices. Of course you will. Perfect choices, never. But better, yes. And we get to hold each other accountable in this community to say we're all trying to respond to God's love together and to make better and better choices. And when we see one another fall, trip, we get to lift each other up. Not punitively, not in a punishing way, but to say, come on, turn back again, turn back again. The idea that we might look at each other and say, you've really gotten off track, turn back to God and I'm going to help you. How many of us would say that to anyone? Oh my gosh, we would hate to risk offending anyone, but how many of us can rattle off the list of names in people in our lives that we actually care a lot about that we want to say that to because they're so off track? What is loving them all about if we don't say the hard stuff? What are we doing for them? Avoidance? That's not faithfulness. And now I'm totally off field. So just, there's a whole lot of stuff behind what I just said that is difficult. What we're going to have to get comfortable with, and I'm going to say we at St. Michael because I can't speak for other communities, but what we're going to have to get more and more comfortable with here is a much higher level of expectation and accountability and the courage and confidence to speak to each other truthfully in love in order to hold ourselves to the path we wish to be on and to not be so afraid of people getting their feelings hurt. If someone's feelings are hurt because we love them enough to say you should be doing X, Y, and Z, or you could be doing X, Y, and Z, or I want to help you do X, Y, and Z, then the feelings are going to get hurt. We, are, we should not be first and foremost in the business of making everyone happy. That's not what we're about. And if we start with everyone needs to like us, what's the point? I mean, go on home because we're, we're never going to be anything more than just a community of shallow feel good. And that's not what I'm here for. The world's a mess. We need to be part of changing it for the better. And we have to get real with each other to say, join us or don't worry about it. When people come to me and say something like, I mean, this has only happened a few times since I've been here, but they really don't like a thing that we're doing and they're going to leave. 
I'll say, well, I hope you find a place that's doing what you would like done. Part of what then I see is the shock on their face that I am not apparently going to vomit all of my you know, guts to try and get them to stay. No, if you don't like what's happening, go find a place where you like what's happening. I don't mean that meanly, but we're not going to respond as a community to one person's attempt at manipulating to get what they want when we've actually been thoughtful enough to decide how we wish to move together. I hope that a person finds a group they wish to move with and that in finding that group, they develop their own discipleship. But for us here, we have to be strong enough and hold intention, kindness and strength such that the time we spend together is worth it. And if it's not, then what really are we doing? Well, didn't expect all that today. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? <laughs> Thank you, Betsy. Appreciate it. All right, then, well, reminder, no study to next week. We will be together again in two weeks as we continue second, uh, First Kings. See you all then. Bye. Thank you.